Episode 25. We made it. Welcome back, folks. My name's Micah Walsh. I'm the host, same as always. This is the podcast. I'll grieve you with this. On today's episode, I had a nice conversation with comedian and actor Jeffrey Emerson. He told me about both of his parents' deaths and, you know, the differences between the two and what he's learned from them. And I hope you guys enjoy listening to it. This is episode 25 with Jeffrey Emerson. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you. Um, Thanks for doing the program. Well, I, vo- I volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you didn't need to tell the audience that, but yes. Um, my guest today is uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Emerson. Yeah, you did volunteer as tribute. So you and I know each other, uh, sort of, but not, we aren't great friends. We know each other through the- We're not, we're not best friends, um, but we, you know, we know each other through comedy. We, we like each other's stuff. I like your stuff. Thank you. Likewise. You know. All that is to say, I don't really know a ton about your background. I do know that you are a fellow member of the Dead Parent Club because you told me uh, two times over. Two times over. I got two badges. Real completist over here. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I definitely want to uh, sort of pick your brain about that. But just for a little context for my audience and for myself, so I know a little bit more about you. Would you mind telling me like where you're from and where you started comedy and just sort of, you know, uh, where you're at now? And then yeah. uh, I think we'll have enough tools for me to uh, extract some of your trauma. Well, the good news is I'm, I mean, I'm old, you know, I'm 48 years old. Um, that is good news. I wouldn't want to be like 26 and have both of my parents be gone. But um, I grew up in a, in Aurora, Colorado. Okay. Um, my parents were divorced when I was one. I have a joke on stage. Uh, now that they're both dead, it's the first time in my life they've ever been together. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, that uh, people hate that. Um, people hate all of the jokes that I do about my dead. <laughs> well, it's good I had you on. Let's let's yeah. make that into a longer format. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, um, well, people then tend to pull back on stuff that they're not comfortable with. It's true. And I feel like you have to, you have to bring them along and let them know that you're okay. I feel like when I started, you know, after my father died, I really started trying to do stuff immediately and I was just still too raw and they can tell when it mm-hmm. hurts. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, much so, so, you know, the reason I bring that up is because my mom was a total sweetheart and very supportive. And my dad was a little bit more of a, a realist. Um, so he, she was really supportive of me being a performer basically my whole life. My dad was a French horn player when he was a kid and he made a decision in his early twenties that he wasn't good enough to hang as a French horn player. So he moved on to sound production sound stuff, which I think is how I, you know, really one of the reasons he sort of, he got me more excited about being an entertainer than I had before. Cause he brought me to set. I saw Raymond Burr playing Perry Mason nice. in 1987. And I was like, this is the life I want. I don't think he expected that. Um, but anyway, so, you know, my mom was a optimist to a fault and my dad was a pessimist to a fault. So you probably experienced entirely different grieving processes when. For both I did. And my mom yeah. went first 
and I, I lived with my mom. So we moved to Virginia, uh, Blacksburg, Virginia in, you know, seventh grade. And that's where I ended up going to high school and, and graduating. Yeah. Just to zoom back real quick, uh, where, when did you start doing comedy or when did you realize that this is a skill that you had that you wanted to pursue? Then, well, I've been, you know, I started acting right out of college. I came to New York and I did that. And then I went out to LA and I did that some more. And then things sort of changed in LA. So I came back here, met a girl who I married, who's my wife now. And I was running a bar downtown and I started booking comedy as a way to get people into the bar. And then I started getting a little drunk at happy, you know, I'd bartend happy hour. Yeah. And I get a little said, drunk. Why not me? And go upstairs and do, I kid you not, like eight minutes at a three minute open mic. Like I didn't know what the oh, rules that's the worst. were. You were the you were bartender though. So you got to supersede the rules. I didn't know there was a light. I didn't understand. That and you, maybe were, I was bo- you were booking and promoting the show as well, but I you was, didn't know like the I basic was, parameters I, of. I basically went up, I started going upstairs and moonlighting on this open mic. And that's how I started kind of like seeing comedians and being like, oh, I should, you know, maybe I should book a, start booking comedy. So I started having people come in, Joe, uh, Joe Zimmerman and, and his comedy partner at the time, they walked in, you know, now he's been on Corden and all this stuff. Uh, so they walked in and had a, a comedy show for an entire year that no one came to. And I saw that I saw comedians performing for no one. And I would, I was like, I want to do that. Sure. <laughs> I want to stand up and bomb in an empty room. Okay. So uh, it was kind of a later in uh, so what you were in like oh, your 20s? I was like, thir- no, dude. I, w- I mean, I'm old. So I was like 38. I mean, okay. 30- so you've been doing it for like 10 years now. Uh, like 10 years. Yeah. I mean, you know, pandemic excluded, included. Did you do comedy during the pandemic? Uh, No, I didn't. I went like 17 months without doing it. And to be honest, I truly didn't even think I wanted to return to comedy. Um, How come you came back? Well, related to this, um, I spent a trip going around the Midwest with my mother spreading my dad's ashes and a lot of things that were funny happened during that time. So I was like, oh, I should I should scrape together some jokes. Then I ended up back in I was in Maine for some time during the pandemic, just sort of to get out of New York. And I found a local like open mic comedy scene and I, you know, I went and did just dead dad jokes and they, they were better than the jokes that I wrote about my dad immediately after his death. Cause I had about a year and a half to process it. Space. Um, also I've mentioned this before, not necessarily relevant, but the pandemic affected my grief in that we, my father donated his body to uh, science or whatever for research. And then the pandemic shut down the university that he donated to. So they were like, Hey, do you mind if we just like sort of like keep him until we can have students here when we reopen? So my dad was in like a fucking refrigerator for like a year and some change. Oh my God. So when we did get the um, ashes, it was kind of like a, it was almost like an after credits scene for the funeral. (laughs) You know what I mean? You're like, Oh, right. A little, I, I forgot. Um, so my mother and I went and like, we went over the Midwest and spreading it and like, you know, funny things happened. And like, I ended up spilling his ashes all over my fucking pants in someone else's front yard when we're trying to like discreetly sprinkle ashes in like a house that he used to live in. And, (laughs) um, 
<laughs> and like, you know, that was fun enough where I was like, damn, I should, I should tell this to people. And then I did the open mics and I was like, oh, cool. This is rewarding. And I actually enjoy doing this. And then I was like, maybe if I wrote jokes that I like all the time, I would enjoy continuing to do this because I was yeah. sort of hitting a, hitting a wall before the pandemic. I feel like I was too. Um, so, so that's really, tr- that's very traumatic. And also it sounds like your dad just kind of died. You know what though? Here's funny thing. My dad died October 30, um, 2019. So I didn't have to go through the pandemic having, yeah, having same. him be sick, which I really honestly appreciate that I didn't have to worry about him during the pandemic. And then I could just four years then. Yeah. Coming up on four years. And my mom, he died September 2nd, 2019. So I also have the interesting perspective of having a father who never heard of COVID and had to deal with all that stuff. And it's kind of before it was cool. Before it was cool. Um, So were you able to have a conventional funeral? Um, We, we were, um, because that was right before it really hit America, I suppose, a couple months before. We did we did okay with the funeral, and ultimately, you know, my whole, I've had a ton of people die. So my my mom died, and she got brain cancer. I came back I came back to New York from LA in 2010. She got diagnosed in brain with brain cancer with stage four. Like right off the bat, it was stage four. Wow, that's tough. Um, and she was. Uh... There must have been something to indicate that something was off. She got it. Well, what was crazy is she was a clinical neuropsychologist and she started noticing that she was having symptoms. Oh, wow. So So she was self-diagnosed. She had, she, there was a flood in her basement. She had a, you know, a deadbeat uh, landlord. What do you call him? A slumlord. She, She had a slumlord. You know, she was... She was living outside of Providence, Rhode Island, doing her child neuropsych practice, living in a house and also using it as her office. And there was a flood and she ended up with a bunch of black mold in her house. And ultimately it was, you know, she got inspectors to come and condemn it. She stopped paying rent. And I believe that black mold is what gave her brain cancer so fast because. Is that um, a thing that black mold does? I mean, in this case, you know, I couldn't prove it to you, but this lady didn't have cancer and then she had stage four glioblastoma. And the only thing that changed was that she had been living in a house with black mold for a year. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, um, how long was her, uh, her battle with cancer? Oh my God. 14 months. She did good. I brought her back up to New York. I took her to Sloan. You know, she was a goner from, you know, she was a goner stage from the set. Is, stage four is no joke. She, so she's self-diagnosed. Basically, she started like losing motor function on her right side. And she started um, like dragging her leg. And she went to her friend who was a neurologist with a joke that was like, I have brain cancer. Like she was joking that she had brain cancer. And then she went to the neurologist and the neurologist was like, honey, you, you, I think you do have brain cancer. You know, you should go get a scan. Um, so that, you know, my grandma, I'm just the king of death over here. My grandma died right before I graduated high school. And that was kind of my first brush with it. But the mom was rough. 
Oh, and also, I can't imagine. I was the only member of our family who like showed up. So I, I basically had to like, you know, run her care, make all her decisions, be her healthcare proxy, be her power of attorney, yeah, you know, sell her estate, you know, yeah. close there's the house. There's so much uh, just bureaucratic stuff that comes in death. Also, there's just like 100% red tape. And she, she wasn't a person who was ready to go. She was 68. So she hadn't done, and she owed, you know, she owed a bunch of money for everything she owed for student loans. She owed for back taxes. Like she was, that she is probably about to go bankrupt before <laughs> she probably got brain cancer. So she wouldn't have to right, file for the bankruptcy, you know? Um, but uh, then let me ask you this, what yeah. was her, not that you can speak on behalf of her, but what was her reaction to her diagnosis? And do you think that she came to terms with what was inevitably going to happen to her? He was super pissed. And imagine. those first three weeks, so she got diagnosed the 2nd of June, 2011. I got on a bus. I went to Rhode Island. Um, she had a biopsy. We found out what it was. The head of the cancer department at Rhode Island Hospital was like, yeah, you're pretty much screwed. She really, she, she told it like it was, which I really appreciated. She was like, you got stage four, it's midbrain, we can't operate. Um, so at that point, you know. it was just purely palliative? So my mom was like, fuck you, I want a second opinion. And she was like, well, I just did my you know, residency at Sloan, I can get you into Sloan. She was like, I'm going to Sloan. So my mom came up here, she lived with me and my roommate in our tiny little apartment for three weeks. She went to Sloan. And Sloan was like, way more hopeful, I guess. Her... That Rhode Island doctors, um, you know, the prognosis was 14 months. There was no way humanly possible that my mom was going to go longer than 14 months. She went to Sloan. She got double chemo. She got radiation. And that just was the end. That was the end of it. Was there ever you a know? period of like an uptick where there's some cause? There was never a period of an uptick, but the way that you asked, like I would go in and it was like a pinwheel spinning, like every five visits, she'd be lucid. She'd be like, Jeffrey, you know, what's going on? Am I in a, am I in a psych hospital? Like what's going on? And I'd explain to her and she'd be like, okay, um, give me your phone. And she'd make a call. One time she called her therapist. Um, another time she called this boyfriend that she loved and talked to him. Like she was always very practical and like taking care of things that she needed to do. I think to just get closure. She was, she was real. She was a champ. Like once she knew she was a goner, she really did a lot of things for herself that I think were really positive. That's um, and um, it was so crazy watching a neuropsychologist deal with brain cancer. It was absurd. I mean, the irony was just absurd. Tell me, uh, I don't know much about brain cancer. Does that, well, obviously it affected her motor skills, but it does yeah. affect her ability. To, you said she wasn't lucid all the time. Does it mess with your brain, like ability to sort of perceive reality? She, she went deep. So it's basically a blockage. Uh, that really prevents your brain's electrical system from operating. So it's short circuits. So she she was just shut down most of the time. She was under. 
Um, and then every, I'd say like every probably 12 or 14 days, you know, she'd come up. And of course I was going almost every day. <laughs> like it was rough. I was still bar like I was still bartending because I had to. Yeah. I mean, and you, I was you, trying to keep going is what you yeah. do. And I was trying to visit her, you know, four days out of seven. And if I only managed to get up there three, because she was a 106 in Columbus in the Jewish home. She They just zipped her right over to long-term care. Like she had a shot at rehabilitation for like a month. And they were like, she's not making any progress. She's a goner. So it's funny because she went from being fully functioning you know, awesome Carol Emerson, like, you know, a child's doctor. I mean, she's a kid's doctor. So, you know, she's a clown. She's Patch. Yeah. She's Patch Adams. Like, she always had a retort. You know, she sucked at juggling. She'd do it. Like, she was, she was a bright light. And from her diagnosis to her just being fucked was like six weeks. And then she was just fucked. Yeah. You know, um, I can't even imagine. Um, I was going to ask you and you just kind of alluded to it. Can you tell me about her sense of humor in better days? Like, what was she like? Did she have a good, uh, I usually ask people about the sense of humor of the person who just, who passed on and if they were, he liked, he liked taking funny pictures with knives, <laughs> oh. like did you like cake knives? You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, like, she uh, did, like, like Jason, she, I'm a serial Yeah, like type. Jason or like she's, you know, she's licking the knife, but she's a, you know, but she's a maniac. I mean, she super, didn't take herself too seriously. Super long story short, super long story. When I was in LA, I used to do this character called John Ruff, who was like a really um, inappropriate, like homeless dancehall reggae star. So I, I just wrote these like sort of, I don't even know what songs that I would perform. And of course, people in L.A. don't have a lot to do. So people in L.A. would really come like I feel like so, like a project like this in New York. No one has time to come and see it. But sure. my whole M.O. for the thing was like trying to get people to leave. So I'd write these funny songs. You know, I had a song called Dog Actor, which was about, you know, dogs. Um in movies, yeah, Airbud, how they don't don't win Emmys, um, you know. Why did you uh, retire this character? Because <laughs> I came it? to New York and really kind of started doing comedy. You know what? For fun, I'll send you. A, I'll send you Dog Actor for fun. But anyway, the point is, she came out and played Ma Ruff, John Ruff's mom, and came on stage with me during my shows and sang with me and pretended to be John Ruff's mom. That's awesome. Um, and we, and we had a blast and the only recording that I have of my mother's voice is a song that John Ruff and Ma Ruff did. That's the together. only one you have all together. There's no voicemail. Called, you just called, have the parody. No voicemail. Reggaetron called Red, song? Called, it's called red weed. Wow. <laughs> She's like, John, give me some cereal or give me some weed. And John Ruff is like, why don't you have some cereal, mom? It's eight in the morning. And she's nice. like, I want weed. Um, that's ridiculous recording is, uh, is I think the only recording I have of my mother's voice. Wow. Well, it's no, better that's... than nothing. 
Um, That's true. Let me ask you, prior to this, was she a performer? That sounds no. like it would take a lot to get on stage and do this character bit. She was a she was a ham. I mean, she grew up playing the French horn. It's how she met my dad. But she was a ham. And she, you know, she worked with kids. Uh, you know, she used to go testify um, in court to get kids, you know, out of special ed or into private school or, you know, whatever. So she she and I was always a performer since I was five years old. So she definitely knew how to turn it on. And she wasn't nervous about being in front of people, even though she wasn't a performer per se, you know? Um, so that was hard. I would imagine. Um, that one was hard. Yeah. And I really feel like that, like, I haven't had a drink in about eight years. And I feel like the places I went after my mom died, I was on my way to like not taking a drink again. It took a while. It took about four years for me to quit. Um, but I mean, just darkness, like Gandalf after he falls down the Canyon with the ball rug and we now don't see I know him. what you're talking about. Don't see him <laughs> again for a while. Yeah. Like I don't really you're remember here. much of 2013. I did a play in the spring. Um, ironically about a man dying of cancer and i just don't really remember the rest of that year yeah i mean it sounds devastating do you want to tell me about her her final days or is that even necessarily a thing you want to go it, over no i mean it was hard you know it was hard um she had been evicted from her well she hadn't yeah i mean she she had mold in her house so while we were waiting to come up to Sloan Kettering, we were just price lining during the day and finding different two-star hotels to stay in in the Rhode Island area. And Aiden, who was my girlfriend at the time, was coming down from New York every couple of days just to try to mix it up. And we were not getting along. Like, um, her life was falling apart and it was really ugly and it was really messy. And um, we just weren't getting along that great. Uh, and it was hard. And then, you know, it's easy to take care of someone when there's hope, right? You can make it your job. And also it gives you activity. Like when you're, you know, health proxy, when you're talking to the doctors, you can fill your existence up with activity that keeps you from feeling what's really going on. Like you can fill up your calendar and make phone calls and pretend oh, you're yeah. a doctor and yeah, talk yeah. to other doctors. You assume the role of taskmaster. Yes. So you don't have a moment to yourself to, 100%. to realize how um, bleak everything is. And then it just went a long time. You know, she was fucked and then she lived another 12 months and my family was nowhere to be found. They came out, they took one look at her and then they went back to California and I did not see them again. My brother finally came out um, to say goodbye to her right before she died. Is but... he your only sibling? Yes. And her brother came out to see her at the beginning and couldn't, he just couldn't take it. And what, one of the things you learn Everybody has a different way of dealing with it. You can't 
you know, I can't judge somebody for how they how they deal with it. What I can do is I can be like, wow, this is a guy that like before this happened, I'm talking about my uncle, her brother, who I really looked up to, my brother too, who I really could have used for support, who really could have hit it out of the park for me. And we could have had a lasting relationship the rest of our lives. And these guys both fucked off and left left me holding the bag. So I I don't I'm not mad at them, but I don't talk to them anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's, it's like permanently affected. Deal deal with it the way they're gonna deal. But it was beautiful. That's the thing that's really tragic. There were so many moments of beauty and so many moments of just sheer just horror. You know. Yeah. Um, experience the entire spectrum of emotions when someone passes, especially 100%. close to it. And just watching her close her life. It, she wasn't closing her life by writing a will <laughs> or, or settling her affairs, which, you know, ultimately came back to haunt me. But she was making calls. She was reaching out to the people that she needed to talk to. Adeline so her head was sense. in the right place. And she talked to her therapist, which I found so interesting. When she really figured out that she was going to go, um, that's when she called her therapist. Obviously, I was not a monster. I didn't stay in the room to listen to her talk to her therapist. But she needed to straighten that out. And, um, and that was important. And then it's funny because we were in the Jewish home. 106 because Medicaid. There was a $1,900 a month Medicaid gap that I had to pay for, I don't know, 13 months, which is why I had to keep bartending. Um, You're a good son. You know, I mean, I'm. I learned. I didn't. I don't know if I started out being a good son, but I sure as hell am now. Well, it's um, pretty obviously you love your your mother. Um, yeah. So you know, a person that in a, a weaker person wouldn't have done as much. Um, Do you but, so the punch the punchline to this her last days yes please um i ran into a social worker from the very early days at the starbucks on 96th and third avenue when you and say the very she, early days what does that mean a person you used to work with a per her social worker when she first went to sloan who helped us actually find a place called i think it's called hope house it's over by MSG. And if you're an ambulatory cancer patient, you can stay there for free. And there's a kitchen and you can have a caretaker stay with you. It's for people who are receiving treatment at Sloan who don't live in New York. So this social worker hooked us up with that. And after going through this particular experience and, uh, and others with family members, I've really learned how valuable a good social worker is. They're the they're the best. And when they're not good, they're the worst. But I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of good ones. So this lady is walking into Starbucks uh, and I'm walking out and she's like, Jeffrey. And, you know, I was like Beth or whatever her name was. I don't remember now. I should. I should, I should tattoo the social worker's name on my arm. Um, she was like, how's your mom? I was like, my mom's fucking dying over at the Jewish home. 
And she's like, have you thought about hospice? And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've done everything I can. I can't get her out of there. It's Medicaid. She's like, let me make a call. She called me back at six that night. She got my mom into hospice the next day. That's incredible. So my mom was actually like in a place with linen wallpaper, <laughs> which she appreciated. And when I got her there, the last thing she ever said to me when they were transferring her from you know, the gurney to the bed. Um, she said, Jeffrey, you did a great job. That's, that's wonderful, man. I'm glad she got to, and I'm glad you that was, that. that was the, the things. And that's the last thing she ever said to me. Yeah. That's, you know? um, that's pretty powerful. I mean, it could have been any number of things, but that's good that you got a final affirmation. Cause it sounds like you really did sort of sacrifice your life for that year. And, you know, and, and I feel like the other thing that happens to you, too, is when you're living in that emergency. It's very easy to return to it instead of taking care of yourself and doing your life. Like I imagine like EMTs and people who work in, you know, search and rescue and these types of people, people who, you know, serve in a war like when you come home you need another emergency. Like you're not, you've kind of been rewired to live at that sort of like level of, of urgency. And so my uncle got sick after that and I jumped right back in. So it's like, there were five years there when I really wasn't doing much for myself. It was so much easier to jump into other people's disasters than it was to really like, look at me, what I wanted and then try to, to do that, you know. Sure. Your mother's name was Carol. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, Carol. Sounds like she was a. Do you do? Do you have you had any ghostly or otherworldly things, coincidences happen no. around I, the death of your dad? Uh, not for me personally, but I when when people do see things and signs in the world, I I take a little comfort in that. I personally have not. Um, experience any sort of uh, otherworldly phenomenon uh, that I can report on. Is that what you're asking me? Is my dad visiting me as a ghost? Or in a dream or anything like that? Um, I've had dreams with my father, but unfortunately they're kind of like a dream that you might have where your gym teacher was a part of it. They aren't like a critical <laughs> part. It's like, oh yeah, they're there because they're part of this plot line, but never right. have I had a dream where I'm just like, father, I miss you so much. Da, 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 da. It's weird that we're, um, but also like, and that's not to say this would preclude any dreams or any sort of, uh, uh, you know, fant what am I trying to say? Phantasm fantasy yeah. uh my father and i had a really good relationship and when he died i felt i feel like a lot of his life was kind of informed by the fact that his relationship with his father was not really colored by a lot of affirmations of love right. and i think that he raised his children in an exact and opposite reaction he would tell us that he loved us all the time he, he cries more cried more than like most people I know. Um, and he would like, he would also laugh all the time, but he was very emotional. And I don't, when he died, I was glad that he was out of pain. I, uh, obviously I was numb and it hurt really fucking bad, but, um, I haven't really experienced any, you know, maybe moments of grace is what reminds me of him. 
Like okay. when I, cause he used to really um do like a lot of work for homeless people. He was a social worker for a really long time. Um, and he like worked with the native American clinic, uh, in Fond du Lac. And he like really made inroads with communities that are like, you know, lesser seen and lesser, um, uh, you know, uh, they have less availability to resources. So basically yeah. when I, when I give, when I see a homeless person, sometimes I'll, I'll like buy them a bottle of water. I'll give them some socks. Socks are like huge. And my dad used yeah. to bring, my dad used to bring socks down to the homeless shelter because, and if you're listening to this, you want to help out homeless people, buy them socks. It's such a, their feet are the nastiest thing on earth and they're not going to yeah. buy, they're not going to buy new socks. This is not their first priority. My father would bring socks down to the homeless shelter. The homeless people called him the sock doctor. And he yeah. would like truly literally give them foot care. Like he would file their nails and like scrub it. And I was like, um, and this is not at all even an answer to all your question. No, <laughs> but it is though. No, because but, it is really true. Truly. I feel like it is because you carry that with you. Absolutely. And you know, whether it's... you're you're probably not cutting the guy's nails because of it, but you carry you carry it with you sure. and it and you exercise that in other in other ways, I'm sure. Very much so. And anytime and I get... find my anytime I find myself being cynical and I catch myself and I go, yeah. I have no idea what this other person's going through. I have no idea what hidden uh, bruises that they're carrying around. Um, and when I have that moment of levity and pause, <laughs> it's not all the time, but when I do that, that's my dad. That's, that's that, you know, um, that's super, it's so important. And it would mean, it, I mean, it would mean the world to him to hear you say that. Cause I think you can say stuff to your kids, but ultimately what's going to get to your kids is what you do. It's just what you do. It's really what you do it with your life, even as much as it is anything that you do with them. Yeah. For them. So. You know, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, my mom and my grandma were both teachers and I just didn't see it in the, I just didn't see it in the cards for me. And then over the pandemic through a whole lot of different ways, I ended up teaching acting. And now that I te I coach, you know, I coach acting. It's m what my day job is. I have my own business coaching acting. That's great. And I can relate to my mom, you know, who worked with kids and my grandma who worked with kids before her on the level of teacher. And it just makes so much sense to me. It's like in my bones. Hmm. It came from those ladies. There's still so many, uh, just so many things. And it's, you know, because all of these people died. So, so uh, my mom, Uncle Bill, uh, my, my mom, Uncle Bill, my freshman college roommate at Emerson, Mr. Likes the Cat, and then my dad. And then after the pandemic, Hank, he died in, I guess he died in May. Um, you can't have kids when you have to deal with all that shit. It's why I don't have kids. I mean, it's not why I don't have kids. If I went in the other room and I was like, honey, listen, <laughs> this is why we, this is. Yeah, this nobody's is why questioning we your kids. sexual prowess, okay? <laughs> no, but it's it's funny because I, ha I took care of those people instead of 
having kids. I mean, really. Well, like also, what? you were also yeah. taking care of them in addition to neglecting your own self-care, I would imagine. If you're working yes. bartender shifts till four in the morning, waking up in the morning, going to the hospital, not only are you not able to care for someone else because you're already doing that, it's kind of hard true. to uh, think about the future also in the, when you're sort of just holding the, the pieces together. And it makes it easy to drink. Sure. You know, and really one of the, like one of the reasons why I stopped drinking is because I realized that I hadn't paid attention to my own legacy in so long. And that I'd run, I'd run into people who were like, Hey, last time I saw you, you were pretty wasted. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like everyone said that. Sure. That's a good sign. And good wake up call. I was like, I don't want people to remember me for that. It was more vanity than anything else why I quit drinking. I was like, listen, I want to leave a mark. I don't have any of the things that I want, but I'm drinking seven days. Because when you're bartending, come on. Yeah, you go I'm drinking seven days a week. And I was drinking on stage. I was drinking and doing comedy, which I think, you know, all of us have our own relationship to that. But I think most of the people that we've come up with, that we do business with, we're in this, I feel like we're in a sort of, co and maybe I'm naive, but I feel like I don't see a lot of cocaine in the comedy that I do in New York. You know, I don't have other comedians necessarily offer me cooking. Maybe it's because I'm a little Maybe older. You're Maybe you're a fucking nerd, bro. We're all doing blow. <laughs> I think I'm a narc, actually. Like everybody but Jeffrey, meet me in the bathroom. Yeah. But but just not drink. We I don't see a lot of comedians who are wasted on stage. Uh, yeah, I mean, the people that, um, that I see that are really, uh, and this is not 100% across the board, but the people that I see really making strides with their career, a lot of their jokes are like, oh, I'm six years sober. And I'm like, well, yeah. that seems like when your discipline and your ability to perform every night and focus on your yeah. career, it seems like there's probably a correlation between the two. Yeah. And that's not to say that it's necessary. Obviously, there's exceptions to the rule, but uh, it certainly it helps to leap out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Leaping out of bed, you can get a lot of stuff done. Sure. Um, are you pretty close to your mom? Yeah, yeah, my mom. Uh, I tried where'd to talk you, to her two or three times. Where'd you grow up? Minnesota. Yeah, I'm from where in Minnesota? Duluth. I grew up okay. in age eight to like twenty three, and then I moved to Minneapolis. Did stand up there for a couple of years. Okay, moved here. But yeah, no, my mom's a wonderful person. Uh, I'd say certainly we grew closer since my father died. You know, and she sort of had to assume the role of widow, which is. I'm proud of her for, you know, learning, like, you know, not learning, but like, oh, shit, these bills need to be paid. We used to have shared bank account. Da, 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 da. You know what it's like when, yeah. when someone dies. There's all sorts of stuff you have to figure out. Right. Um, No, she's uh, I am lucky in that my family is full of people that are very overly sensitive, uh, pacifist weirdos that are not afraid to cry. <laughs> um, That's good. Yeah. Minnesota. Come yeah. out. Yeah. Well, 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 my dad's from Chicago. My mom's from Iowa, but they just ended up in Minnesota. <laughs> That's so funny. That's like yeah, splitting the girl, difference. Town, yeah. It's splitting the difference right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I spent a little time in Chicago, and various members of my family have lived in Minneapolis at one point or another. So I've spent time in Minneapolis too. Let's, um, 
Do you want to tell me about your father and his passing? Isn't that fun? It's like therapy. About two minutes before it's time to go is when I start talking about my father. There's no time limit, although I will probably edit some down. But yeah, for the sake of brevity, um, let's just rush through your dad real quick. Yeah, let's, we'll get let's the plugs bop. out of the way. No, I'm kidding. But um, let's bump. Uh, let's bump through my dad, and then I have uh, an exciting show on the fifth of October. Um, sure. The dad is the dad is a very different story, um, and I really just in terms of comics, I'm just, you know this isn't the most hilarious. 45 minutes I've ever spent in my life. But just in terms of comedy and trying to bring this stuff on stage, trying to find some perspective about it and also just kind of like the freedom that comes from having both your parents gone is outstanding. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it necessarily really pays you back for what you have to go through, but it really is something else to have nobody that you got to call. <laughs> sure. I mean, you are an adult orphan overnight. Yeah. yeah. Um, but tell me well, what it was like. It sounds like it was liberating, but tell me what, um, you want to tell me how your dad passed and then we'll sort of explore the, yeah, the liberation well, and, aspect of it. And you know, the other thing I'll say too is that, when your parents are gone, you realize that you're next. Yes, very much so. And I really feel like the first 50 years of your life, you don't think about that. Maybe you do. Who knows? What are you into? You're into the kinky stuff. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I really feel like we run around feeling pretty invincible for a while. Um, he, You know, my dad... My dad was a Sherman tank. I mean, my dad had a triple bypass in the 80s. He had a quadruple bypass like 15 years ago. Uh, when I was living in LA, he called me in 2003 and asked me if I was sitting down. And I was like, Dad, I'm driving the car. And he was like, pull over. So I pulled the car over 2003. Now, I've already told you that he died in 2019. Yes, this is long before the final. He calls me in 2003 and he says, I have congestive heart failure. Um, I have three weeks to live. And I say, okay, I'll be there. And at that time, I was a cheeky LA actor and I didn't have a lot of money. So it was hard for me to find a way to get to Colorado to stay in a hotel. I didn't rent a car. I was taking the public bus to the hospital to see him. And um, I got there. He looked like he was going to die. The whole thing, it was, he was in the bed, the way his mouth was. I was like, oh my God, this is a dying man. And I was ready for this. And of course, all my friends you know, in Los Angeles, my girlfriend at the time had sent me with this little miniature DVD player that flips up so you can watch DVDs. And I had a stack of DVDs, you know, and his wife brought his dogs in, had gotten special permission to bring his dogs in. And this motherfucker left on the bed stood up, petted the dogs, sat in the chair, hugged the dogs, wept with wow. joy at the dogs, 
and then 10 days later, he's going to make it. Wow. And I felt useless. He didn't have um, that reaction when you walked in? No, he did not. He was <laughs> he very serious. start crying and get out of bed and ooh, 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 rub his boy? hands ooh. behind your ears. Ooh. And it's funny because my, my wife makes fun of me for not being a dog person. Okay, well... Yeah, makes well, sense that yeah, I have yeah, a couple of little kittens. All sorts of, all sorts of Freudian stuff going on there. Well, and my dad just loved his dogs more than he loved me because he understood his dogs. He well, his understood. dogs, you know, aren't going to ever disappoint them artistically. Right. <laughs> you know and I, mean? I didn't, I didn't gonna... call. Right. It's, it's true. <laughs> and I didn't call him back for three weeks in college one time. And he held on to that for the rest of his life. Like, I feel oh, wow. like he didn't like my mom. He cast me pretty young, and I really didn't get a chance with him. And I became a, a wonderful, fully formed, compassionate person. And I was, you know, very good to him at the end of his life, because what else am I going to do? You but I feel like he, yeah. Sorry, your he folks didn't... split up when you were young. One, when was I was he, one. Was he present in your upbringing, or was it joint uh, tried. custody? I mean, but he, it was more like he, mom did the... No, uh, it wasn't joint know. custody. I mean, he, he remarried when I was five um, to a woman who actually ended up being a real nice lady. I feel like he poisoned us against each other over the course of his marriage. Hmm. He really compartmentalized a lot of stuff. Like, I would... Um, you know, I'd be on a TV show or something, or I'd do a comedy, you know, bid and I'd send it to him and he'd be like, Oh, I'm not going to show this to Diana because it's too, it, you know, it's too racy. And then after, uh, you know, after he died, she was like, you, you know, you, do you have any, do you want to show me a comedy better? So I showed her a bit and she was like, this is like, we yeah. could have done each other a lot of good, I feel like, if my dad hadn't kept us apart. She actually turns out to be a real nice lady. Do you um, think that, that was part of your father's personality was not being able to dispense uh, uh, messages of approval? Yes. I think that maybe. And then was that, what What was his deal? Ooh, ooh, was he, did he come from a hard family? Well, he, you know, his dad was born in 1899. Well, there you go. And so his dad wasn't good. So his dad was in his middle age by the Great Depression. Well, not yeah, really, and, and, and his dad died, uh, you know, when he was, I don't know, probably 26, 39 to 66, whatever that is. 27. His dad died when he was 27. And so he never, and the men in this generation don't work on themselves. They don't go to therapy. Oh, they're they work not on themselves thinking, at the bar. Yeah, at the bar, right? But, <laughs> but on also, like, Jack why Daniels. am I so angry? Like, these fellas have never asked themselves the question, why am I so angry? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Well, uh, I mean, honestly, that generation, <laughs> even the idea of self-analysis sounds like yeah. woman, womanly. You know what I mean? It's like, that's some quack shit. 100%. So, really, I think it's our job in our generation to do the work on both sides. And once I figured that out, I was like, hey, Dan, listen to me. You know, when I tell you a story, I book a gig or whatever, you the, your first response is a negative one, how it's not going to work out. And I just need you to know that that hurts my feelings. And I want you to just tell me you're proud of me, man. That's all I need to hear. I said this to him when I was like 24. Because 
he's like, you never call me. And I'm like, honey, <laughs> I don't call you because you bum me out and say a bunch of negative shit about my life. Sure. So I don't want to call you. But if well, what if was his reaction me, when you vocalized this? He was quiet for a long time. And for the rest of my life, you know, I'd call him and I'd be like, hey, I got, you know, I got this gig, whatever. And he'd be like, no, I don't want to sound negative. That's, that's so sure. he would preface what he was going to say. But yeah. no, I don't want to sound negative. And then he got around to the point where he would say that he was proud of me, but it was like the dismount. It was like the wrap up at the end of the yeah. conversation. Like when like... I used to go to Colorado to visit him, he'd have a $10 bill for me. Right. And we'd be sitting in the car, he'd be dropping me off at a friend's house for a couple nights, you know? And he'd take that $10 bill and he'd just like rub it between his fingers. And like he had me, like now he has me, right? And he'd say some stuff about how he was proud of me and it was good to see me. And then he'd give me the $10 bill and, and set me free. So I've worked on my dad a freaking ton in therapy. And the other thing that happened with us his older brother of 15 years, my uncle Bill and I lived in this apartment in New York and we were best friends. We were super close. He got the acting. He, your uncle lived with my, you? your my father's uh, brother. No, he lived in this apartment. So when I moved to New York, I started having lunch with him every week okay. and we became very, very close and we became each other's support system in New York. So when he got sick, I took care of him. But um, when he died, I think it was very clear that, you know, Uncle Bill and I were close in a way that I was never with my dad. I'm sorry. Like, you know. Even, even in his death, you're apologizing for, for you know. Yeah, for well, for just him not getting me, and I tried to get him, and I tried to give it to him, and I mean, he just at a certain didn't point, know how to take it, you know. At a certain point, parents and children are reverse roles, especially in fractured relationships like this. One hundred percent. Where you're just like, hey, um, man, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna teach you. Taught me how to shit. I'm gonna teach you how to cry. Like, yeah. You taught me how to ride a bike. I'm gonna teach you how to uh, give a compliment without uh, having some sort of weird caveat that makes me feel bad <laughs> you know? like, here's oh. some emotional training wheels yeah my my dad was good at saying something positive and following it with a butt you know? yeah but by the way you're still not good enough um, um so you know what we did so right before the end of his life sorry let's back um, up how did he die so by the time it was time for him to go, he had had seven bypasses. He had had a stint. He had survived prostate cancer. Um, he had diabetes. He had hypertension. Like, they don't yeah, build yeah, them. The whole list. Like that. Like, if you opened up his trunk, there was like a box of rations from the Korean War. You know what I mean? Like, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was... I would say heavily duct taped together. He was duct taped together. He couldn't walk so hot. We went on this trip in 2018, the summer of 2018. So he died in October, 2019. 
we went on this trip. We got on a on a Hurdy Gruten scientific boat, and we went up the coast of Norway above the Arctic Circle, and we did all the fjords. And it was clearly our last trip to everyone who, you know, understands that type of thing. And we had gone to Europe before. And this particular time, he's like, I have to go on the boat. I can't do the one-nighters. I can't do trains. I can't lift my suitcase. I was like, we'll do the boat. He wanted to do the boat. I resisted the boat. And then finally, I was like, let's do the boat. We'll do the boat. So I called the boat. I asked them if I could do comedy. They said yes. So I had a comedy show about 10 days into the voyage. And by that time, I'd made friends with a lot of people on the boat the Danes, um, the Swedes, uh, the French, the Italians, the right? Just only white people. <laughs> well, Italians. Yeah, um, there were only white people on the boat. It was a kind of a white person boat. But uh, no, and, and... So how'd the comedy show go? Well, so we didn't have a talk. Like you think when you go on this trip with your dad, right, that you're going to have a talk. What was the talk going to be? I uh, What did I want the talk to be? Like, hey, I'm proud of you. What, look out for some stuff. You know, the gold is buried, uh, you know, right. under the back porch. Like something, like give me something to go on, buddy. Revelation. I did the comedy show. It was incredibly difficult to do comedy for people from 17 different places. Oh, I know. The buffet jokes ultimately killed. I completely abandoned all material and just started doing physical impressions of the boat. Um, you did a physical impression of the boat? Yeah. When That's high concept, honestly. <laughs> my, ro my room was right above the engine room. So it's a scientific boat, which stops like six or seven times during the night. And every time they stopped, they'd have to back up to pull into the thing. So if you're above the engine room, it's like, you know, like this. Pit. great. I invited people to come up and do jokes. You know, I, I was going to try to do an hour. I did about 45 minutes. Um, people stood and clapped. It was a great boat experience. Good for the boat. Sure. And he was in the front row. I had a lot of people come up and be like, I've never seen anything like that before in a boat. I really enjoyed it. You know, you obviously switched gears. I really appreciated it. Like I had such a positive experience. And my dad comes up to me and he's like, well, that's what you get for doing comedy in Europe. Wow. <laughs> so completely and different reactions like, to. Okay. Okay. And then uh, one of the Swedes came up and she was like, Jeffrey, that was hilarious. You pulled a rabbit out of the hat. I was really worried for you. And you turned it around and it was great. And he was like, I taught him everything I, he knows, you know? That's so he was so happy funny. to like yeah. take credit. So ultimately so funny. the boat landed. Um, we had a couple days to kill before our plane left. And I was like, dad, here, top of the world. Here we are. Right. This is it. Like, this is it, man. I looked at him and I was like, we have our health. We're here together. You're my dad. I'm your fucking son. Is there anything you want to say? You know, you have any questions? And he was like, what's for dessert? 
Yeah, you know, that's as deep as he could go. So if I if I got on that boat because I wanted something from him, was that fair of me, or really was it fair to myself for me to expect that this fella who hadn't really given me that sort of golden moment was going to give it to me when he came out to LA in 2003 and told me he was going to die. I remember him telling me he was going to die and us collapsing into each other's arms and crying. That one moment had to be enough for, for the rest of it. So we did hug and cry in grief over his death, which would not come for another 16 years. So I did get that. And I thought about that. So at the end, basically what happened was he got really sick. My stepmom was really protective. I tried several times to visit. She didn't want me to visit. I don't know if he didn't want me to see him like that or if she didn't want any entanglements. I managed to go out there in August. I just bought a ticket and went. I didn't wait for her permission. I saw him. He was really fucked up. We had one little conversation at Village Inn. And and then I never saw him again before he died. And he died in October. I didn't have a chance to get out. My stepmom, to her credit, she was like, your dad's going to go. And I was like, I'll get a ticket. I'll be there at 8 in the morning. And it was just one of those where it was like... I had to wake up at four and she called me at three and told me he was gone. So I I missed, I wasn't able to be there, but after doing that three times, I was like, it's her funeral. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's her experience. She took care of him for the last 40 years. I am going to let go and let this uh, woman handle this, how she sees fit. I don't need to be the hero in this situation. I'm going to, she wants to handle it. I'm not going to find it. I'm going to let her handle it. And when you talk about grace, I feel like um, I understood a lot of very profound things in that moment of letting her have that and kind of putting some of my own feelings to the side and just being like, look, this is just the way that it was meant to go. Sure. You know, I accept it. That's pretty big of you. I guess. I don't know. And then we text. Yeah. You know, she's, she's cool. The last couple of times I went out to Colorado, we had a dinner. We said, hi, never that close in life, but now we text. She's a very liberal Democrat. She likes talking about, local city politics, the power company, stuff that I can get into, you know, the mayor's office, stuff like that. Um, So tell me this. I have a question for you. Sure. As a comedian, doing a podcast about grief, um, <laughs> is it usually funnier than this? <laughs> um no, I mean it's it's certainly not a laugh a minute. Um, yeah. And I mean you you compared it to therapy, it is pretty comparable to therapy. Uh I sort of defer to the uh to the guest, but I think I certainly I get something out of this. That's I'm not doing it. Is this that part. why you think you started doing what made you start doing it? 
I want to talk about my dad. I want to talk about the fact that it's probably, I'm never going to be okay with it. Um, yeah. But also I want to talk with other people who are funny and people who know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and you know, as well as I, as soon as you die or some, your parent dies, someone says like, welcome to the dead, dead dad club. Welcome to the dead mom club. I'd never heard that before. And I was like, Oh shit. I'm just a part of a tribe that I didn't even ask to be a part of. But now I have all these unknown brethren where it's yeah. like, if you meet someone and they're like, Oh fuck, your dad died. Well, sorry. And then I think on my last one <laughs> to my guest, I said, Hey, your mom's dead. Um, well, my obvious condolences, because at this point it's like implied, we know each other. Like, right. We're all, we've all, you know, our survivors. Um, I guess I had more to say about my dad and I guess this would be the easiest platform to do it. Um, I feel like, well, I know that people want to tell me their stories because now I have comedians and non-comedians alike who will ask me to do my podcast. And sometimes as soon as I saw it go by, I just, I reached out because I was like, hell yeah. Like I want to, I want to participate in that because everyone has their story, you know, and it's good. And you don't really get an opportunity to talk about your dead fucking family members, (laughs) you know, unless you're going to do like go to Edinburgh or like, you know, make a a show out of it and sort of preface it with like, this is what this is going to be. It's nice to be like, you know, and I didn't really explore that much, but I do like to explore the humorous aspect of death. Like, you know, like when something funny happens on the shittiest week of your life. Yeah. Well, of course I would stub my toe. My mom just died. Yeah. Um, Important. Do you have a joke? Do you have a joke that you, so here, you know, before we go, like a lot of my jokes about my parents have never worked. There's a couple that work now that I use if another comedian before me has talked about losing a parent, you know, but I'm never going to, I'm never going to go up at least not yet. Maybe I will. Maybe it'll change. Maybe even talking about it now makes me go back and, you know, look at those notebooks and see if there's anything that I want to say about it, like coming from where I am right now. But it's hard to sell those jokes. It's hard to sell those jokes. Is there a joke that you do um, that you like that seems to be working? Um, You know, I only do my dad jokes every now and then, but I do have a joke where I preface it by saying, I'm going to close with some dad jokes, you know, and then the audience thinks I'm going to tell some dumb one-liner <laughs> groaners. And I'm like, has this ever happened to you? You ever forget when your father's birthday is? So you have to Google his obituary. <laughs> and I have this whole story about finding my dad's obituary, but it's like a small Midwestern newspaper. So I can't even read it because there's a paywall, you know, yeah. and journalism isn't dead. Unlike someone, da, 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 da. you know, yeah. it has all these beats. Uh, yeah. But uh, that one's fun. It's one that I'll throw in at the end. It's also like you can't really throw some dad, friend, dad, parent material in the middle of a set because it's kind of hard to segue back into, you know, what's the deal with, you know, Little Caesars or whatever my whatever my current closer is. Um, but <laughs> little Caesar. do the little Caesars, yeah, my yeah, God. Yeah. It's, you know, it's my hot pockets. I'm, I'm like Jim Gaffigan. Um, yeah. But no, I, and I would like to revisit that long story that I told about spreading the ashes because it's. Which sounds hilarious. 
I mean, it was fun, and I've probably told it less than ten times. Um, it's good. Listen to me. It's good. It's good to keep telling that story so you don't forget. Yeah. You know, when when I had my mom's memorial in Newport, there was this beach we used to go to. She lived in Newport, um, like in a little tiny apartment, like in one of the in one of the mansions, you know. So she was right like in the fancy part of Newport. And there was this little there was a tiny public beach next to the beach where like the Kennedys used to go or something, sure. you know? And so when I was there for Christmas, we go down to this little tiny public beach and it was freezing cold and we would just run around and sing Christmas carols. And it was like, you know, stunning. So when she got real sick at the end, we were waiting for her to come to New York to get treatment. We just splurged on a hotel down there in Newport and so we were kind of in the in the fumes of those positive memories, you know. And so I had her memorial there. And then we sprinkled, the idea was that we were going to sprinkle the ashes into the ocean. But there were four sets of ashes. There were her ashes. There were my grandmother's ashes from 20 years ago. There were the ashes of two of my mom's cats. Okay. Um, Fred. Uh, I can't remember the other cat's name. Peace, Fred. But so we had four boxes of ash, and you know from sp- sprinkling ashes, there's a lot of ashes. There's so much ashes, and I have like a shoebox full of my dad's ashes. And it's heavy, and it's a lot. Oh yeah. So we go out to the super windy you know, promontory. And it's like, as soon as you bring your hand out, the ashes are going all over everybody. Yeah. yeah. And we decided to go in reverse order. So, you know, the cat, I can't remember its name was first. And then Fred, the cat, who was a treasured cat. And then my grandmother and then my mom. And so when I, when I threw Fred's ashes, this huge seabird comes up from like down below on the rocks and is like, Sure. It was like very Lord of the Rings, very, very epic. Um, good way for her to go, yeah. uh, to go out, you know. That's nice. Uh, and I'll, we will never remember where she is. Yeah. She's Why is that? on She's one somewhere on the beach, little somewhere piece of coastline by a very fancy house we don't remember which fancy house fine. i mean she's back in the ocean she's reabsorbed into the energy that is everything very true very true that's, that's nice that's a good send-off for her yeah um the one joke that i have about my dad that i'll do that doesn't always work um but uh my cat died Mr. Legs, he had this wonderful long back legs. And I was, uh, I was heartbroken because he was like a son to me. And then a month later, my dad died. And I was heartbroken because I was like a cat to him. That's pretty funny. Every time I jumped up on the counter, he told me to get down. Nice. And that's more for me. I feel like that that's always more 
that's always more for me than it is. That's structurally a fun joke, but I could yeah. see audiences being like, hmm. Yeah. Now I just now I just feel bad for your loss. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Which audiences will do that. Yeah, when they are. Yeah. But that's nice. I mean, either way, it's we're writing jokes about it because it's still with us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be writing jokes. One hundred percent. And who knew that our our fathers passed away so close to each other? And also, once again, thank uh, goodness that we didn't have sick relatives during the pandemic. I feel so bad for the people who had sick relatives. I feel so bad for the people who lost people in COVID and couldn't bury yeah, them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't do funerals. Um, that's a po- yeah, we, that's a positive silver note. lining. Silver lining, yeah. <laughs> Quite a positive note to end on. Who would have known um, five years ago if you go to the future and go, "Hey, the good thing about my dad dying is that we were able to have a funeral." <laughs> and they go, "What is that? Not something that's we're just taking for granted anymore?" Oh man, isn't it nuts? Uh, totally nuts. What was your father's name, by the way? Oh. So Jim um, Jim Emerson and we had the the same initials J R E, um, and a great great moment for pride with him. He'd take me bowling. I don't know if you ever went bowling with your dad. You probably did Minnesota. You probably went bowling. I don't know if it's a Minnesota thing, but I have bowled with my father before. I'm, I didn't mean I think, to come I think on a, I think so hot about Minnesota America thing. I just think Minnesota, the Midwest, freezing as cold six months of the year. Bowling seems to be a pretty good way to get the joints loose in Minnesota. I, I have played a game of bowling with my father. Okay. How Are you a good bowler? No. You ever bowl over 100? Maybe like 150 once. I mean, I think that's pretty, I think that's an above average bowler. Anyway, on the bowling sheets, back when you used to write them, he would write J-R-E and then J-R-E-2, Roman numeral. Second. And that that was a great source of pride. I, re- I feel like I really looked up to him until I was 12 years old, and then he kind of ruined it all, you know? I'm glad you at least sort of uh, had some sort of relationship towards the end. Me too. It's all for the best. It's all going to break again, like... It's going to break the way that it breaks. And I think it's real important for for everybody to just take time out of your life to spend time and connect. Agreed. Like when we went on the trip on the boat, like he didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, but at least we did it. Yeah, at least have I have experience. that memory, you know. Um, yeah, so because you can't get it back. Yeah, no, it's gone. It's gone forever. Save the fucking voicemails. I have a voicemail from my dad I haven't listened to yet. Uh, you're not the first guest or person that I know who has recordings that they have not listened to. Yeah. And it's got to be tough. Yeah. I mean, that's straight from the movies, right? Come on. Right. Well. There it is, Bunny. It's, um, I appreciate you sharing your, uh, your stories, man. I, it sounds like uh, your parents were pretty big figures. In different respects. Yeah, definitely. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to say about them? Or should we just get right into the plugs and promotion? No, it's just... uh, I mean, if I have any perspective from all this, I think it's super, super important when when you're a caregiver or after 
somebody important to you dies to just really make the time, just make time and space for yourself. Because I think the tendency is to overschedule, overcommit, over frenzy. And I think if you can just, you know, take a Tuesday and have a bath and do, do nothing else, watch Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, I just feel like if I could go back to myself on that first one, I learned it from my mom's death and sickness. But if I could just go back and be like, dude, take more time. Just yeah. take a little more time. Don't even take more time for your mom. Just take a day for yourself. Um, yeah. no. I think it really would have, have helped. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's my final. Just take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself. Yeah, and I, you, I you can't, you're like you can hold other people's lives together while you're while you're also falling apart. Yeah, and if you give yourself time, it doesn't mean that you have to you know lie down on your bed and cry. Although that's always a good thing to do, but yeah. it gives you time to j- just even like catch up with what's happening your brain is going to need to catch up to your body honestly one 100 so that's really you know that's what i would tell people and also my friend chase who lost her mom a long time ago the what she told me when i lost my mom was you're going to be crazy for two years hmm. just accept that you're going to be crazy for two years and hmm. forgive yourself and be kind to yourself i would say that too I'd, yeah I'd, I'd second that one yeah, and that, just in general, stop being so hard on yourself. To my listeners out there, one hundred percent. Even if you're not sacrificing your life to take care of a, a dying person, yeah. Well, I, I highly recommend though. Highly recommend if you get the get the chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sacrifice your life to take care of a dying person. Really builds character. Way to grow. Do you have anything to plug? You got no. anything coming up? Uh oh, I don't know. My listeners in Minneapolis, I'm gonna do the Ten Thousand Laughs Comedy Festival October 12th through the 14th. That'll be fun. That's fun. I haven't been back there in ages. Yeah, it's been like five or six years since I've performed in Minneapolis. So holy crap! Yeah, yeah, it'll be good. That's That's great. You're new. You're New York tough. Yeah, look at me. Right, go back down, crush. I will. You know, we'll see. It should be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Apart from that, I don't think I have anything else going on. You got something coming up? Well, you know, I we um Jill Wiener and I do our show in Brooklyn on Thursday nights uh, called Left Dance Saloon. Mike has been on it eight o'clock, a basic um off the ground stop. That's Will- really fun. East Williamsburg, the realtors. East Williamsburg. I'm yeah, and I'm looking forward to the acting strike being over. The the writer strike is over, we hope. So so hopefully there will be uh, some other stuff going on, but I'm around. What's your acting coach company called? Uh, Emerson Acting Workshop. There you go. And it's on Thumbtack. That's I never even occurred to me to plug that. You know that? Stick with me. You'll get 30 downloads on a Tuesday. I can't wait. What's your social media's? Oh, my, my uh, social yeah, security number is 52145. Um, you see me playing with fire? 
that's the real actual first five numbers of my social security number. I mean, there's so still like how many left. How many different combinations for those last? At least several million. Um, Chancel Chancel Adams on Instagram. Rest in peace to both your parents. Thanks for telling me about your stories, man. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Socks for the homeless. Yes. I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put some socks in my bag, especially for winter time and coats. We have a coat drive in my building too. I'm not even being facetious. Like if you give a homeless person socks, their eyes light up in ways that yeah. make you feel guilty about your own place. Right. About but, your um, 10 pairs of socks that you, that you have sure. at home. Well, yeah, I think that concludes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I appreciate your time. Great to see you. Be well. Yeah. Thanks we'll for having me. We'll talk soon, I'm sure. See you later, bud. Bye. Yep. See you, Jeffrey. So that was episode 25. I want to thank Jeffrey Emerson for sharing his story. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, like, you know, write a review or something. Tell your local congressperson. I'm trying to get the word out. And to my Minnesota listeners, I will be in Minneapolis doing my comedy next weekend for the 10,000 Laughs Comedy Festival. So if you want to come on out, that'd be cool. Ask me for a sticker. On Friday, I'm at Sisyphus Brewery for the Ian Fidance show at 9.30. And then the next day, I'll be at the Comedy Corner Underground at 7 p.m. for the Seriously We're Joking show. And that'll be fun. Shout out to Comedy Corner Underground. That's sort of my hometown club. Uh, And it's been a while since I've been back. And then for the rest of you, just keep clicking on this recurring link. New episodes coming soon. Goodbye.